A tiny kitchen, no oven, a minuscule fridge, no electric power, a small two-burner hob and prep space the size of a chopping board. Lots of us think we have small kitchens, but imagine cooking nutrient-dense food in these circumstances. That's exactly what our guest today, Charlie Burton, did for her, her husband and her two young children for two years, all whilst travelling around Europe. Listen into this episode to hear how Charlie cooked three meals a day and lived in a six and a half metre long van and what advice she'd pass on to all of us with limited space. How she managed to find really good food on the move despite cultural and linguistic challenges. The beautiful food highlights of her time, including an amazing ancestral-style heaven in Slovenia. How she regularly made pizza with no oven. The constraints and restrictions she experienced on the way, and how both of these things can actually support us to live and cook the way we really want to. Let's go. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I want to start by saying thank you to our community of patrons who help keep us going. If you're interested in diving more deeply into the world of ancestral food that we're sharing here, Andrea and I, check out our page over at Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast to see how our wonderful community works. We actually had a new patron just yesterday, Nick Campbell. So thank you ever so much for coming on, Nick, and looking forward to um, sharing and getting to know you. And if you love this episode and it brings you value, please do share it in some way and help us get the word out. Um, Post about it on Instagram, tell a friend, take a screenshot, share it. Everyone who tells the world that they love what we do helps us to find more people for the podcast, which is a win-win. So to today's episode, we have a guest today who is Charlie Burton. And Charlie is a mum an entrepreneur and passionate local food advocate who I've never actually met in real life, but I've met virtually. Um, The first time we met was in 2014 when my son and her first daughter were really very young. And I was in the UK then and I was searching for like minds, parents who were eating and feeding their children with whole nutrient-dense foods, like I was trying to do with my son, Gabriel. Charlie, who's got two daughters now, found me back then and we struck up a virtual friendship. And then I went on to kind of kickstart a Facebook um, Western Price UK parenting group that Charlie is now an admin for and has been since back then. And for many years, I followed her life and her food adventures on Instagram. And the reason that I wanted to get Charlie on the podcast today is because in 2018, she, her husband 
and her two daughters set off on the most amazing adventure, traveling around Europe in a van. And as, as we go through the episode, she'll explain all the details. Suffice to say that both Andrea and I were super excited about having her come on and talk about her travels, how she sourced good food in various different countries with different languages, and how they managed to cook it for four people in a tiny van. So welcome, Charlie. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here with you today. Tell us, the first question we always ask our guests is, what was the last thing you ate? So tell us that. So in the UK, it's about three o'clock. And so the last food that I ate was my lunch. And I had mm-hmm. I had a simple lunch of scrambled eggs um, with eggs from our own chickens. Um, mm-hmm. And I had that cooked in some um, homemade wild garlic butter. Um, my husband oh, foraged wow. the wild garlic from... Um, a kind of woodlandy meadow bit not far from our house. And I just had that on some sourdough rye, which is bought in, not homemade at the moment. And mm-hmm. I had um, a fermented gherkin as well. And that's also something that I've I've bought. Oh, okay. and a glass How of raw milk. How many chickens have you got? Oh. oh, lovely. How many chickens have you got? Tell me about your chickens. We've got six. Um, it was... Something that we were really keen to um, to bring into our life when we finished our van adventures and came back to house life. Animals and chickens in particular were one of the things that we really wanted to get. So they have um, a large kind of penned off run um, at the end of our garden, which is a big garden. We do live in a kind of mm-hmm. quite urban, suburban area. Um, so we're trying to bring mm-hmm. a little bit of that kind of life into the city yeah, some real, some real animals. <laughs> nice. Tell me about the garlic butter. How do you make it? Do you buy the butter and then put those forage garlic in it? I did, yes. Yeah, just very simply just chopped the wild garlic up and sort of mashed it into the butter. Um, and then. Ah, okay. So you don't have to melt the butter, you just kind of have the butter at room temperature, do you? And then, yes. then mash the garlic into it? Yeah. Okay. That sounds delicious. Do your girls like that? Do they like wild garlic? Uh, they don't. They don't complain. They haven't complained about me putting it in food. Um, they they're very used to me putting green sprinkly things in food. So I I often <laughs> put herbs in food, um, and I also use like the seaweed sprinkles in a lot of food. Very oh, much yeah. like um, very much like I do salt and pepper. Really, so they're quite used to me doing that. So it's not too alien for them. Yeah, I think that's the key. Kind of if you're doing it often and you're doing it regular and you're doing it from a young age then it's not anything unusual which is really cool okay so let's talk about your adventure first of all tell us about your family and then tell us about the trip you went on why you decided to go on it and where you traveled to So um, as you mentioned, I've got my husband, Nick, and I've got two daughters who are now like four and a half and eight and a half. And Mm -hmm. back in 2018, we were living in a really beautiful place and we were renting um, a lovely kind of farm cottage. It was called Dairy Farm Cottage, um, which as somebody who loves raw milk and things was such a romantic Mm. place to live. Um, It was beautiful, but there was just 
just something that just felt amiss in our lives. I'd had a really like sort of tricky postpartum after my first baby. Um, I'd been running my own business and it was um, the whole birth experience and postpartum was really challenging and it just really shook us up and um, yeah, just, just things just didn't feel quite right we were living in this beautiful place and I just didn't really feel very happy or content there so it was a really Mm. big decision to leave it because um it was lovely and it was the kind of place I thought I wanted to be but we for various reasons we decided that we would um go and travel around Europe in an old motorhome which we bought and we we completely gutted it and rebuilt it my husband primarily rebuilt wow. it and when my my second daughter was about 9 months we left our house um we put the remaining belongings we had into a storage container and mm. we spent a few months at my parents finishing the van off because we still hadn't finished it off and then we left in the beginning of July 2018 and it was very much an open-ended journey. We we didn't have a home in the UK anymore. And we always said if it was like two months or two years, you know, whatever it was, you know, it would be the right thing for us. And so we had our ferry ticket and we set off to France. And wow. we really didn't have anywhere to go. So <laughs> it was very much we turned up in France and we just sort of looked at the map and found somewhere that, you know, we could get to for the night and it just went on like that really with a few kind of deadlines. We really wanted to get to the south of France to go watch the um, Tour de France and then we had um, Mm -hmm. a date in Italy where we were meeting up with my parents. So we had a few things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's kind of how our journey went and we ended up doing that for nearly two years and we spent the majority of our time um, in France, um, but we also spent quite a bit of time in Italy. And we also went to Slovenia, Switzerland, Germany, Luxembourg, Belgium and the Netherlands over that time period. Some of that we had to come back for the odd month here and there in the UK. Um, but mm. yeah, so... Um, yeah, it was... So both you and your husband were able to do that kind of work-wise. That's not a problem for you to move your work and do that as you were working. Um, so my husband, part of um, part of the choice to do that was for my husband to have a break from work, um, to just sort ah. of reassess what he wanted to do and to spend more time with our children when they were young. Um, yeah. That was something that was we were finding difficult in the life we were living. It sort of we couldn't really sustain it. Um, it was just that lack of family time, really. Um, and yeah. then I have an online business, so the plan was to that I would be able to do that while we travelled, and I would obviously have my husband there to to take care of the kids while I worked. But it didn't really work out like that because we had a really um, big emotional kind of psychological journey me in particular Mm. um Mm. through that kind of that leaving and it just brought up so much stuff and I didn't really do a lot of work in the end um it it ticked over a good percentage of what we needed but we did eat into our savings a little bit every month um 
so yes, yeah, so that's how sort of financially we did it. It's really interesting that you, you know, when, when we make these big jumps and leaps of faith in our life that we have a plan and we think, oh, well, yeah, that'll work out like that. And it's so easy, it has been for me, to just kind of neglect the thought that actually big changes create big changes emotionally and then we have to process those. So it's interesting to hear, you know, that for you, that that moving and and changing your lifestyle, like, completely had had fallout. I think often we kind of, particularly as women, we can think that we just need to move on, you know, well now we're a mum okay we've had a kid we should be able to just slip into this life but it it doesn't work like that at all no it's um it was I I think we thought it was going to be this certain vision of van life which is there's a lot of wonderful beautiful images on Instagram and things like that and I think we just thought well it's going to be amazing we're going to be together as a family and that might be a bit tricky to start with um but it just it brought up so much stuff and at different points for um my husband um he went through a couple of months of difficulties and I had my time and um Mm. yeah it definitely brings up a lot doing something like that Tell us about the space, the actual van itself, how it was organised, how big it was, and then what cooking facilities you had in there. So our motorhome is 20 years old um, and it's about six and a half metres long, um, which my husband Mm -hmm. said is about um, 10 square metres kind of maximum if it's empty. And obviously that's got stuff built into it. So hopefully that gives you a little idea of what kind of space it was. Um, size wise which was quite tiny to fit four of us in um, yeah, and like a whole mini house in it so we had uh, in there we had a tiny kitchen which had um, a two burner gas cast iron hob and a tiny mm. fridge which is about 50 litres we had no um, running hot water only cold water from a tank under the van that we had to fill up um, we had a composting toilet. <laughs> um, okay. We then had a double bed over the cab and like a sitting area where we ate dinner. It then transformed into what I called like a day bed, sort of like a sofa-y sort of thing. And yeah. then at night that then extended out to become our second bed. So we were every single night we had a day we had to make up and put down beds. <laughs> Um, Gosh. and then we had solar panels as well to help us with our kind of power. Um, so yeah, that's, that was kind of like the space in a nutshell. So no oven at all, just literally two hobs, no oven. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, okay. I, my, I adored my kitchen mm-hmm. in that van and I still miss it. It was, <sighs> you, you know, because we built it ourselves, it was, um, you know, in a lot of ways, yeah. how I wanted and, and having that cast iron Beautiful. hob was something I was really keen to have because mm-hmm. I like co- cooking with cast iron. So I needed something that was going to stand up to cast iron pans on it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And what um, surface area did you have to chop? Probably like a large chopping board size space. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Gosh. <laughs> Did you um, did you do all of your prep in the van or did you have kind of good weather and space to put table and stuff outside and be, be outside and do prep and stuff out there as well? 
I think quite a few people do that and we probably definitely could have done but I when I think back I don't think we really did I think I did most of it in the van um, I think I preferred to get the children and my husband out of the van um, <laughs> <laughs> and then have the space to cook inside um, we we had made our dining table so that we could screw on uh, short legs to make it into a table that we could have outside like a floor okay. level kind of table and I think we did that once yeah. <laughs> and then we didn't wow. do it again um so so yeah we didn't really have yeah, a I setup can... for for cooking uh, for preparing um preparing outside so I did most of it in the van. I can I can kind of get that because you know once you've got that space and you know what you've got then if you can get everyone else out so they're not under your feet or in the way then there's a way of creating a system in the space that you have. So I kind of understand that. Whereas I've tried to prep outside quite often and, you know, people are all around you and you, you haven't got what you need and there's flies and there's wind and it just, sometimes it's more hassle. Yeah. <laughs> it's better just to be in a small little space. Yeah. So what I'm most interested in is finding out how you got access to good ingredients because you're in countries that you don't know you don't necessarily speak the language I mean in any of those countries it's not like traveling you know around the US where everyone speaks the same language and all the cultures are really different as well so tell us about how in those countries on your journey you were able to get good food so I think my main experience was that Europe was really easy to find good good ingredients and good food um mm. and I don't know whether that's that's me I guess in unpacking this with speaking it through with you we'll maybe see whether it's mm. particular to the things I did but um I feel like just knowing where you need to look and what you're looking for is helpful um and then it can be found everywhere in our experience um as I mentioned, we spent a lot of time in France. I think over the over the sort of two years we travelled, we worked out in total, we spent about eight months in France. Um, mm -hmm. And the markets in France, they're on really regularly. Um, most towns, villages, they seem to be on. Uh, there are lots of kind of expat websites that you can find sort of uh. listings of all the markets in a particular region. So I think, you know, okay. if you know the region you're in then you or the town, you know, it's it's easy to find that information. Often I think the, like the squares in those towns often will have a sign that tell you when the markets are. So, mm -hmm. so finding markets in France, certainly, and we also found them in Italy, just didn't seem to be a problem. And they're just so full of just incredible seasonal, local, regional produce. It was it was just a treat, really, for somebody who <laughs> wishes she could have that access the whole time back here in England, which it, it's a bit different here, I think, compared to, to a place like France. So, um, How would you say it's different with the markets? Because I know there are farmers markets in the UK. What's your experience of the UK market-wise compared to what you found in these European countries? I think perhaps they're a bit more few and far between. And okay. I think a bit more hit and miss with what you might find. So okay. I've definitely been to some of the larger ones where, you know, you find all kinds of produce, vegetables, um, baked items, dairy, meat, all, you know, big variety. But then perhaps some of the smaller mm -hmm. ones might be 
more baked items, so more like cakes, desserts, breads and stuff. And I think for me, what I found in Europe is that that huge amount of choice of produce um, in terms of like vegetables and fruit and um, dairy, like the kind of the basic ingredients rather than like necessarily like made food. Um, Yeah. And for me, that's that's what I'm looking for. Um, So I think that's probably... Um, the main differences for me and, and why I loved being in Europe so much for for the markets. And was the language a problem at the at the various markets you went to in the different countries? Um, I don't I don't remember it being we just we just picked stuff up. It was definitely the best way that I've ever learnt, you know, like picked up French, you know, compared to my experience of trying to learn it at school to to actually yeah. be in the country and spend time in it was by far the best way to learn. So, you know, standing in queues, you would um, hear how the, the French are asking for things, um, which so I would pick up bits from that. Um, and we did have a basic grasp of, of French, certainly. Um, and, you know, just being able to know like the a few kind of key amounts or how to say slices or yes, okay kilos or grams um pointing if you really were stuck but um yeah I think in the markets we we definitely found like that we got by all the other countries we didn't really have any knowledge of the language a tiny bit of knowledge of Italian um but Mm. I still managed to buy things in markets in in Italy and Slovenia and places like that so I think yeah if all else fails pointing is is okay in a market at least so and hand gestures so and what were the highlights of looking for food you know all these countries that you went to have their own individual um kind of legacy of preparation methods and ingredients there must have been some amazing things that you saw and witnessed and ate how long do you have (laughs) (laughs) i I have so many like (laughs) um So I think it's probably worth mentioning that in Italy and Slovenia, if you're interested in raw milk, that they both those countries have vending machines for raw milk. And there is Mm. definitely a website for the um, Italian one in terms of finding those, which I use quite a lot. Um, Mm. So I just think that's such a helpful thing to know because... Um, it's it's so much easier, you know, really easy. I didn't expect to find raw milk as prevalent as we did when we travelled. Um, yeah. But in terms of specific highlights, so I asked my family as well if they had some yeah, particular great. highlights. So my husband, Nick, his one of his food highlights was a meal we had in a place called the Val d'Orcia in Tuscany in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know through my wedding directory, a family who run an agriturismo there called Il Rigo, mm-hmm. and she made mm-hmm. a rabbit dish for us. And I, from my memory, I think it was like rolled with herbs and then maybe like um, covered in like a, almost like a prosciutto style ham. And wow. so that was the one that Nick particularly remembers. Okay. Um, for me, there was... 
the most also in Italy we went to a cafe that was recommended by a garage when we were visiting a garage one of our numerous breakdowns <laughs> and we asked for like a, a really we wanted a local place and often people will try and tell you like pizza places or you know like the touristy places and we yeah, said no yeah. we really want a like a really local place and they sent us off to this um wonderful place and I just remember this fantastic um ribolita is that am I pronouncing that right okay, maybe yeah, yeah um yeah. so like a beans and vegetables kind of soup um mm. so I remember that one really really particularly and my eldest daughter her highlight is one that ties into probably one of the highlights of our trip um she remembers a particular yeah. kind of beef um broth or kind of consomme a very clear beef soup with these homemade mm. noodles that we had in Slovenia and we wow. stayed at this farm in Slovenia that was not far outside the capital um Ljubljana and we went there to camp um, in the van and discovered this incredible farm where pretty much everything was grown and made on the farm their vegetables meat drinks like you know everything um and it was just it was like a window into a, another world really gosh, the, the night that we gosh. arrived we arrived in the dark into their farmyard and there were these spotlights and like the whole family was out and they were if this is the right term, they were shucking corn. So they had all the dried corn. Wow. So this was in October yeah, yeah. time and they were shucking it all as a family and putting it, I guess, aside for like the winter for animals, um, which was just blew my mind <laughs> when we arrived to that. Mm. Um, and they were just the friendliest family. There was fresh bread baked every day. They made their own charcuterie and liquors mm. and... They had apples Gosh. that they pressed to cider and then they would make vinegar from them. So we saw them pressing those apples. Um, they had these big trays of sliced mushrooms. I guess they would have been wild mushrooms that they were drying outside in the sun. Um, it was just the most incredible food experience. And they, on the weekends, they would do meals. Um, so a lot that seemed very popular with local people would come there for a meal um and so we had we actually went we went off and explored a bit another bit of Slovenia and then came back again because we particularly wanted to come back and eat there again um yeah I'm not surprised <laughs> you know just to eat a whole meal that is literally produced from the place that you are yeah. by the people the family just I think was just um just yeah blew my mind really just it feels like that's you know it life wasn't not long ago that's how we were living and I, I would just love to get back to that and to experience it happening in um modern day Slovenia was really special so yeah what an incredible experience like you said it it wasn't so long ago but that that was the norm and I think when we go and have a glimpse into these things we can feel it in our in our bodies we can we feel the energy and the love and the creation and it just it brings so much yeah I am um, yeah I, I want to go there <laughs> <laughs> did you bring stuff back not not physical stuff but did you have you tried recreating some of the stuff in your kitchen at home with the recipes you tried or have you changed any of your techniques in your kitchen because of what you saw um the the ribolita I definitely went off to mm. determine to try and like 
sort of, you know, partway recreate how yeah. good that meal was. Um, but, but I made it quite a few times because obviously, as I mentioned, we didn't have an oven, which I didn't need for that dish. But we yeah. did, um, to break up our journey, we did this like house and pet sitting. So we would have like a week mm-hmm. or a couple of weeks in someone's house. And oh, I remember okay. making that ribolita quite a few times when we were house sitting in like a, in a big bulk amount, which I couldn't really do in the van. Um, yeah, but in Slovenia, particularly, I brought back um they their tourist office had these incredible leaflets about their food traditions with recipes, and I've still got those somewhere and there was mm-hmm. um this bread which was like a sweet bread with sort of rolled with tarragon in the middle, um mm-hmm. which I thought was really unusual that we tried there, so I'd love to do these things, and um you mentioning it makes me feel like I need to go and dig those out and try a few of those but um I think just having that access to fresh food like on a sort of very yeah. regular basis which I don't have in the same way now um for me that that really drives my passion for cooking and so I'm probably lacking a little bit of that at the moment um how to yeah, capture that I get that I know the difference between how I feel in the kitchen when I was living in the UK to how I feel as a creative in the kitchen here in Italy and that part of the reason, you know, very small part of the reason that we came here was because the food is just, it's more beautiful. It's more available. It's more tasty in it. And it, people generally take much more pride in it. And I know that that affects me in the kitchen. So I can completely understand how having all that around you or not having access to that around you can would change how you want to express yourself, certainly, for sure. Okay, let's go back to the van now. Now we've talked about all these fabulous ingredients. You've got a tiny fridge, and I'm guessing no freezer. You've got two um, ring ring burners (laughs) on a cast iron hob. You've got no oven. So how often were you cooking, and how did you do it in that tiny space for, for all four of you? So... We mostly were cooking three, you know, sort of three meals a day, which is how we cook, you know, living in a house. You know, I don't really tend to, I mean, we do buy in, you know, meals sometimes and we do eat out occasionally, Mm -hmm. but I just carried on with what I knew, which was, you know, making our, our meals myself. And I imagine that thinking about, we probably, you know, lunches were probably quite simple, just sort of like that sort of picnicky nibbly bits um Mm -hmm. but yeah definitely just carried on on cooking despite the small space and I just found ways you know I just got into a rhythm with it and I had those wonderful fresh ingredients so I wanted to cook with them I remember previously going on holiday to France and just over buying at markets because I would just see all this stuff and just think I just want it and then we would never (laughs) never be able to eat it all so it was really lovely to know I was there longer and could sort of pace myself with buying ingredients um but in terms of the space it, it was definitely a learning to um to cook in that space especially with um two children around my um, my 
youngest was only just one when we left and so she was still crawling around so you'd have like a (laughs) this little tiny corridor (laughs) where I would stand to cook um I was right in the middle between the sort of sitting area and where you came into the van and the back of it where our toilet was so that you know you would have to just squeeze past each other the whole time um which is why I said I quite like to send them all outside and try and (laughs) have it free to cook um, but only one person could really cook. There wasn't enough space to have more than one person cooking. And I, f- I feel like it just became a kind of a dance that we kind of learnt in the end. We just got into that rhythm of of how it worked when someone was cooking and how to get past each other or move out the way. And um, yeah, and, and the great thing about the tiny space was that everything was in reach. So... Um, I literally could just reach into all my cupboards from where I was and the fridge was directly behind where I stood to cook at the burners so once Mm. you open the door of the fridge then that completely blocked the corridor so yeah (laughs) it was quite a juggle but I don't I don't really remember I I don't know whether this is me looking back with sort of rose-tinted spectacles but I don't really remember Mm. it um, for the majority being a problem it, it was an enjoyable thing to do and we just sort of figured it out really did you have staples that you kind of relied on that you knew you could just go in and produce for dinner that you kind of repeated that made it easier um I can't it's going back a while now so I try and hmm. try and think back but we definitely had like store cupboard staples because we had to be aware of um, if for some reason we couldn't get to to a shop to buy food or a market, we had to you yeah. know make sure that we were covered. Um, but I definitely pre- you know preferred to use fresh ingredients. I, th- I feel like we would have probably continued having eggs quite a lot at kind of breakfast time. Um, mm. But I can't. I really enjoyed just sort of absorbing what was in season where we were or the region, Um, certainly in France, you know, even the supermarkets in France, you move from one region to the next and there's a real sense of change in the supermarket. So, you know, particular regions that make a lot of pate and terrines, you know, you suddenly see all those in the supermarket and then you go somewhere else and they disappear and there would be something else that's particular to that place. So I just really enjoyed kind of going with what was I guess those kind of like you said the sort of staples of what I knew how to cook but then taking this inspiration from and changing things out for whatever was sort of available and and interesting and a bit different. I know that um, you cooked homemade pizza in the van which astounds me like no oven and a chopping board space and two burners and we're both Andrew and I are both really excited that we're going to um, get you on video showing us how to do it because um, you used I believe your cast iron pan so maybe you could just give us a little um, brief walkthrough of how you did it and then if people want to come and watch you do it we will have 
um, you showing us on video, actually in the van, I hope. Yeah, we're going to um, Which we'll be recording next week. <laughs> They're really exciting. So we'll actually see the kitchen. <laughs> we'll see that beautiful cast iron stove and we'll see you making pizzas. So tell us, I can't even imagine it. How did you do that in that little space? So I think the inspiration came from a Jamie Oliver book called Jamie's Italy, where he talked about mm. fried pizza and many many years ago I think before we had children um back when we f- I feel like we have more time to experiment with these things we I remember mm. trying this fried pizza and I think that just must have popped into my head at some point and I just sort of tried it my own way based on that idea so mm. we would roll out the dough and then dry fry it in the cast iron pan um Mm -hmm. so a bit like a flatbread really and then I would so I'd have that on one one of my hobs and on the the other burner Mm -hmm. I would have my my pizza sauce so it would be hot um and then once the the dough was cooked on both sides I would turn the heat down as low as possible put the sauce on and um the mozzarella in quite small sort of chunks so that it had a better chance of melting quickly and then I just Mm -hmm. put a lid on it and just gave it enough time that I wasn't hopefully burning the bottom of the dough that was in contact with the cast iron but with the lid on hopefully enough heat to melt the cheese and because the pizza sauce was already hot um that was it really (laughs) so quite simple nothing nothing you know we I didn't try out any other kind of toppings but just based on those principles that really all I was needing to do was melt the cheese at that point your girls must have loved that (laughs) it was great fun especially as I said we didn't have an oven so um we didn't we didn't miss having an oven at all I think there's a lot of um people who living in vans who who feel that their oven is really essential for them but we didn't miss it at all and yeah we found a way with (laughs) with pizza so and we still we still can since you shared that with me since you shared that with me several people have have come and asked me about it so I think I've been through stages (laughs) of my life without an oven when I've moved house and um I I think it's something that people are interested in in doing um, because it's not, you know, other cultures did cook flatbreads, like you said, on the on the stovetop and it, it is totally possible. So um, having said that, I can't imagine doing it in such a small space. So <laughs> and I really want to look inside your van. So <laughs> I'm really excited for next week to actually see how those kind of come together on the stove and watch you do your thing with it. So thank you ever so much for getting the van up and um, recording that for us. Let's talk about um, fermenting because I know that before you went, when we connected, um, both of us were trying to eat a kind of a Western price style diet. And so that's, you know, the good ingredients, the good fats, and but also fermenting. Did you manage to do any fermenting in that small space? It was one of those things I set off on my van adventure with very good intentions that I was going to certainly do my milk kefir. So I took some milk kefir grains with me um, in a jar, and I believe they spent maybe even the full two years in the back of the fr- in the back of the fridge unused. Oh, um, it just it just it, well, there were two things to it. I think that 
well, partly we had quite a hard start to it and, you know, fermenting things was just not a priority. Um, mm. But aside from that, I think the the temperature would have been, the temperatures around something like um, like milk mm. fear would have been really tricky in the sense that we'd, we headed into the south of France and then across Italy yeah. in like July and August and it was oh like 40 degrees in that van at some points it yeah. was unbearable and I can't really <laughs> I think you'd have fermented kefir in about an hour at <laughs> that temperature yeah. <laughs> um so I think that would have been really tricky and, and potentially just the constant travel so you're constantly having to clear down all the sides yeah. so yeah, we would have course. had to like have somewhere specific I think to make sure it was properly secure while we were driving um so yeah. i think that would have made it tricky and the other the other element for me was that just there was such good access to those kinds of food um mm. everywhere we went really certainly in france and um i i'm trying to think about italy they probably were in italy and then certainly in like germany there were fermented vegetables um Mm -hmm. because they're obviously big on those sorts of food but yeah there was just such good access to like certainly fermented dairy like cheese and yogurt and creme fraiche in the markets that I just didn't really feel that in the end that there was a need to do it so yeah I get that and I didn't even think about you having to secure them down when you were driving I think about the amount of times we've moved and really every time we've moved we've had a call bag with us and it's had jingling bottles of water kefir and sauerkraut in it that generally Rob is carrying while we're on a train with suitcases and goodness knows what else. And and we've had several disasters where water kefir's just spilled everywhere or sauerkraut spilled everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, when you're driving, you, of course you can't leave water kefir out or milk kefir out on the side. Of course not. Andrea um, said to me before... Um, we um, got together to, to record this, that she wanted to know if you had any kitchen disasters. And this feels like the moment to ask <laughs> about whether whether anything went really wrong or there was something funny you can tell us about. So I, I spoke to my husband about this one because I felt like I was mm. struggling to think of things to start with. And then I thought, like, <laughs> that surely can't be true. But um, there, were, <laughs> there were really... Um, we had lots of van disasters, so maybe they just overshadowed uh, other things. Um, okay. But we, there were a few, not necessarily kitchen disasters, but food-related moments. So I had a, bought this beautiful mushroom soup in a bottle because a lot of things like that in France are in glass bottles, mm-hmm. um, and. Mm-hmm. It was in a cupboard and I, a low down cupboard, but it was still sort of one shelf up. And I knocked that out and it, it shattered over the floor and oh. that kind of like mushroomy gray brown stuff just going all over the floor. Oh. And, and that was when I was on a, a solo trip, um, six weeks with my girls. So I had to deal with glass and Gosh. I was just mortified at this sort of very expensive <laughs> soup that I've been so looking mm. forward to having, you know, a, a meal that was mm. made for me. And, um, so that was, oh, feel you. that was really upsetting. Um, and then we had two, there were two that came to mind moments of very expensive, um, mistakes um in france so my husband had a very expensive mistake in a market with some very nice ham but he asked for it in slices and this very jolly (laughs) 
French producer of this very beautiful ham cut the thickest slices. And I think it, I think we had like two slices of this kind of cured ham and it cost maybe like 15 euros, which was at the time really eye-watering when you're sort of trying to stick to a sort of a budget. Um, And we had another moment like that in France at a butcher's. They had this beautiful uh, vegetable soup and we misread or misheard the the amount it was Mm. per whatever like measurement mm. it was and we came out and looked at our receipt and we actually went back in because we thought it, they got it wrong and so for this pot of soup to feed the four of us I think it was 30 euros <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> which was just like we just couldn't okay. believe that like, there hadn't been a mistake made but obviously by that point we bought it so there was nothing we could do and it was very yeah. very good but yes um those were some uh, painful, expensive <laughs> food I, mistakes. <laughs> I don't think, I know that we've made that mistake before, um, going to markets and, you know, there's different languages, there's different accents and you think you've caught what they said, but you're kind of worrying about how much to buy anyway and, and you want it and so you just buy it and then you're like, oh dear, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. So yeah. I've been there and done that. I think we... Uh, I wanted to... Yeah. So I was just going to say, I think after that, we very quickly Mm. learned the word for thin slice in French so that we could be very specific (laughs) about what we were asking for when it came to slices of ham. Yeah, Yeah, completely. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask, you said earlier, you know, that you wanted to use the ferment, you wanted to make ferments and you set out with all those intentions. But really, when when you saw the actuality of how you were living, it just it wasn't your priority and you could buy them anyway. And I think really from the whole trip, when I imagined doing that, you know, I imagine I'd have all these ideas of what I wanted to do. But actually when you do those things, when you're in the van, you realise what's important for you and what you want to prioritise. And I'm wondering, you know, looking back on those years of travel, what did you find out was really important to you around nourishing yourself and your family? I think that what really came out from for me and certainly having this opportunity to reflect on these um, on that experience by doing this interview with you is just how mm. like that joy around eating I just look back on that period of with just so much like excitement and joy and passion for the the foods that we found and experienced and that that's kind of regular access to excellent quality food from people that just so care about what they're making just makes such a huge difference for me in terms of um sort of the ease of meal planning preparation um being guided by what's available um I just feel like I I really work well, you know, with those kind of those kind of parameters and I just I definitely resonate with what you said about your move to Italy and and part of you know that being around the food because definitely back in the UK now I just feel that I just have lost a bit of that, you know, in terms of what's mm. this overabundance, you know, I can go to the supermarket or the shop and there's just every food from everywhere whenever I want it and and I find that really tricky I I would much rather I mean I wasn't I didn't have narrow choices when we were traveling there was still abundance of things but 
There was just a different sense to it, that regionality, seasonality, local food. Um, and it, it was that ease of access to it. It was really, I guess, because we were traveling as well. You know, we, we would shop every few days because we didn't have very much space in the fridge. And um, yeah. I just, I have to drive really far now to, to find those producers that I know. And I have to, you know, do it every couple of weeks and such a different mm. way to to cook and meal plan than than what I got when we travelled. So, Yeah, I, again, I totally resonate with that. I think I was scribbling down some things while you were, while you were talking. I think that um, greatly constraints... Um, create creativity you know when we when we only have a certain number of things to work with we find ways to work with them that we wouldn't if you know if we were if we were looking at a great big supermarket with all these different choices in there and also that regionality it brings sort of passion back I know that a simple example of me here is broccoli because in the UK as you know if you go into a, a supermarket you can buy broccoli all the year round you know you can just get your broccoli and you can have broccoli any day of the of the year whereas here broccoli literally disappears and the whole summer there's no broccoli and then I I'm on cloud nine when the broccoli comes back in the late autumn here because I'm like yay broccoli's back and I can do stuff with this broccoli and and when that happens to all the different foodstuffs it, it like you said it turns meal planning on its head because you're you're working with something that's fresh and new and rather than just being bombarded by everything and and kind of going almost robot like over it that that's my experience with it for sure i want to know why you came back home because it you know despite all the um problems that you've kind of hinted at and it sounds like you had kind of problems with a van and it's a huge learning experience um I can't imagine how um how many things are tested by putting four of you and packing you into a van like that but um yeah I wonder why what drove you to come back to the UK after your travels there are a couple of things that I think just came together at the time that we decided we would come back. So one of those was money and finances, as I mentioned. Mm, okay. um, my business yeah. was, the income from that was um, covering a good percentage of what we were spending, but not all of it. So we were diminishing mm. our savings. So that that was, that kind of practical reason was definitely part of it. Um, my husband, who had, I mentioned, had stopped working, he discovered on our travels that he really likes working <laughs> and um <laughs> that you know he you know he wanted to work again and he had managed to do a bit of freelance stuff um at various points like over the winter we'd uh, rented a gîte in France and we'd done some house sitting and things so he'd had some chance to do um some freelance work but he he was just he was keen to to get back into to work again really mm-hmm. So that was um, that was another part of it, and I, I guess those were probably the the big practical reasons. And mm-hmm. in terms of why the UK, I think we both set off on that journey, 
really hoping we were going to find somewhere abroad that we wanted Mm. to settle down and start a a new life. And Mm. we just didn't. There was always practical reasons or, um, you know, other kind of heart reasons that sort of, um, that nowhere just felt quite right. And Mm. in the end, when we left the UK, I had some some new really kind of growing friendships with other women and in terms of coming back I just felt like I wanted to come back to where we'd left which I think was a shock to both of us that was we just didn't think we were coming back to the kind of Manchester area and Mm -hmm. I was drawn back by those friendships and it just felt like that was the right thing to do um right now at that moment and I guess our travels Mm -hmm changed our perspective on life in that sense that before we went I think we felt like um we're getting older we've got all these dreams if we don't do them right now then we'll never do them and I think our Mm. our travels and our journey that we took showed us that that's not the case that we can do what feels right right now and it might be different in a year or five years and then we'll we'll reassess and we'll will change if you know and take a different path if if it feels right in that moment so we're we're back here um (laughs) in in the area that we lived in before we left and it feels like a a, I feel really content here at the moment I, I don't want to I don't imagine that we'll stay here like long term or forever but um it feels good at the moment and part of part of coming back to living in a house for me was that I was hopeful that I would be able to do like longer trips with my daughters without my husband um I home educate so I have that flexibility mm-hmm. but um just before covid happened in the sort of January and February of 2020 I did 6 weeks on my own with the girls in Europe um and I think I did mm-hmm. about 6 countries and it was it was an amazing experience to realize I could do it on my own and yeah um Nick came to visit us for the end of that and that was really fun and I was hoping that when I came back I would have this kind of mixture of the the things we love about living in a house so you know wanting pets and chickens and vegetable garden but I would also have this opportunity to go on these kind of month or two month kind of trips to Europe and as we all know that's <laughs> that's not been possible the last few years so yeah maybe one day yeah I hope so. I hope you'll be able to do that again. I think it's a beautiful piece of um, learning that you express that, you know, you kind of, you wanted to be able to find find a new home and you had the idea that we have to do it now. And then to have the perspective of, well, no, we don't have to do it now. We still do have time. We still can, we can live day by day and choose in any moment what's right for us. And that that's something that i've i've experienced i think a lot before um i had my son <clears throat> thinking that you know time was passing on and and i'm going to have a son and i need to be able to do these things and feeling the passing of time whereas now i'm although we've settled here in italy i don't know whether we'll be here forever and i'm open to there being a time in in you know however many years time where we might be in a different country where we might be back in the UK 
and and that's okay. It doesn't have to be, oh, I know what my future is and and I know where I'm going to be. It, it's okay to to go with the flow more, which I think is what you were saying, which is nice. Is there anything else um, just generally from the trip that you you feel you learned that you would like to share? I think we all learned how to be more resilient. So as an example, well, sort of an example of what I mean by that, we, any time at the very sort of the first few months of our, our trip, whenever we had a problem with the van or, you know, mm. challenges, me and my husband just didn't cope very well. You know, we descended into arguments. Um, mm. You know, it was the end of the world. We just... We're just not in a great place. We just didn't handle any kind of challenging situation very well at all. And then at some point, we just we just noticed that we were handling those things so much better. And that's what I mean by resilience. So <laughs> somewhere in Italy, I think sort of down Tuscany way, we'd gone up a rather large hill slash mountain to stay at the top for a bit and on the way down something snapped in the van and we didn't know what we were going to do my husband managed to fix it with a cable tie and some other piece of something or other and he managed to coast us down the other side of this hill um in second gear into a town and managed to sort of roll us into a garage and (laughs) where we got fixed but we just I just remember this like sense of calm, like it's okay, we'll we'll figure this out. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, at the mm-hmm. the first few months we would have just it would have been like we would have thought that you know, just the world was ending and yeah, just yeah. that sense of resiliency and and I think to a great degree we've we've brought that back into our lives and um I just feel that that is such a blessing really to be able to to handle situations um better and yeah to feel more resilient to whatever comes along um which I think definitely stood us in really good stead when Covid hit um because we spent the first three months of that lockdown in a campsite in the van my husband starting his work (laughs) and he he did his first two days of work from the car um (laughs) so it just it just really helped with you know it's just i just see how valuable that's that learning is in in all aspects of our life um yeah and what you touched on previously about constraints and kind of limitations um mm. i just i really need those and i'm still trying to figure out how i bring those into mm. living in a house in a urban environment in England where I've got you know turn on a tap or switch on a light and everything is sort of yeah fairly endless or limitless um I really miss those kind of limitations that were put on us by living in a van um and it seems so much harder to to implement them into your life um a bit like the endless choice of food really um so that's definitely something I've learned but something that I'm still sort of working on and how to bring that into my life um now so yeah I think those are some of the key sort of learnings for me so really nice reflections I remember when I came back from um, traveling in Russia a long time ago and I'd been in places where 
they live completely off the land and had big vegetable gardens and animals and, you know, sheared the sheep and made their own clothes with the wool. And I walked into a supermarket in the UK a couple of days after I got back and I just looked at all the shelves of polystyrene meat and I, and I had to leave the shop because I was just like, I can't, I can't cope with this. It's, this is not right. And I feel like, yeah, those constraints can help make us into much more um, much more creative and, and stronger people. And the other thing you said about um, constraints is that it's, it's hard to bring them into our lives. And the kind of the spiritual teachings that I've followed over the last few decades, so many of them have said, stop having lots of choices. The less choices you have, the easier your life becomes and the, the more um, in integrity you're able to be. And I think that that's the work of a lifetime to, to narrow our constraints in a society that just wants to show us choices at every stage. And those choices aren't necessarily, the ability to choose isn't necessarily the right thing for us, I think, as humans because we wouldn't necessarily have had that in the past. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. Um, we are getting close to time, and I have one more question for you, which is about your space again, um, in that there are a lot of people who come to us at the podcast who want to eat ancestrally, who want to eat good food, but they've got very, very small spaces. And considering what you went through, I would love to hear what you would say to those people who have small spaces and want to eat well. This felt like quite a challenge to <laughs> to to think what my sort of advice might be. I I feel like the obvious one would be, um, and I'm I'm sure it's come up on your podcast before in terms of advices around like prioritizing things. But I don't feel like I'm very good at prioritizing. I want to do everything. I want to have all the ferments, and <laughs> so I, I'm not sure that um, <laughs> I'm not sure that I can give that as one of mine because I, I just don't feel like that. I wholeheartedly want to go in with prioritizing. Um, so I, I think what was interesting from this question was that back in the house now uh, where we live, we are in a sort of fairly standard, um, semi-detached kind of 1930s house in in England but I actually have a really small mm. kitchen and it's beautifully made um by the previous owners but it's actually really tiny and I remember when we came to round it I was like oh I'll be fine in here because it's it's not much bigger than the van kitchen <laughs> and um I think we've actually got less storage in this kitchen than in our van kitchen um gosh so I'm not sure I, I am so enthusiastic now that I've actually been living in it for um, over a year that it's so mm. small, but um, it helped me to think about it because I, I am still dealing with a, a fairly small kitchen. Um, so I think things from van life that helped, um, like how I approach it now is just how much you can maximize your space and you know I would love a kitchen that had like sort of clear shelves with like some nice things on them and um but actually I I need to make the most of the wall space and so I'm slowly adding in bits okay. and pieces you know shelves or things like that we we seem to be slowly adding to it because we need the storage space um and mm -hmm. 
when you when we built our van you know you make the most of absolutely every inch um mm. so trying to 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 remember that and use that as i approach my kitchen um it's definitely been helpful i think mm. um trying to get creative with your space so the previous owners left this it's like a giant green tent that is in our garden. It's apparently people use them as like a a bit like a a garage or sort of shed. Um, this the previous owners had a mm-hmm. like a gym in it, but we actually have put um, a chest freezer in there because we like um, we've bought uh, half a pig the last two autumns okay. from a local producer and without that space we just couldn't store things like that or bones and so it's not ideal but it works um so I think any any ways that you can sort of add in those bits in unusual places perhaps um we just have to shove stuff here there and everywhere I I I don't have space um I would I don't think I'd want to put the chicken food outside at the moment so I've just bought two huge sort of sacks of chicken food and they're just going to go under a a small table in the corner of our dining room because that's just Mm. that's just where it is and I guess it's just a juggle and trying to relinquish some of that that desire for a a very nice perfect looking kitchen but it's just got to be practical and just fit those things in um, wherever possible and I think my final thought on it was again looking back at van life was um streamlining what you have which for me in a house is still very much a work in progress and by that I mean like um like what gadgets and stuff you have you know that take up space and I Mm. didn't have like electrical power in the van so I just had a hand whisk and I had a moolie um to you know that I could make soup with if I wanted to sort of blend something up and you know we only had enough cutlery and plates for what we needed which you know we haven't we've got more of those things now that we're back in a house but I think that's one way that you can definitely you know that you could is sort of cut down on on things that you maybe have more of than you really need or use and I'm slowly trying to whittle away at sort of the kitchen gadgets that I had pre-travels and what I actually use and what I actually need and you know can I do it you know like can I combine it some way with one thing or or get rid of it totally and so yes I think those were the key ones that that I could think of thank you is there anything else that you want to add that I haven't asked or that's come up um, before we close I don't think so. Just, um, just that it's been so lovely to to dive into, you know, to bring it all up and uh, reminisce over this life that I had that feels quite a long time ago now. So, um, thank you so much for sharing it. It's not something that Andrea and I have have done. So it's been fascinating to hear how you did it and your experiences of the different countries for sure. And I'm I'm really excited to look inside the van <laughs> and see the beautiful stove and um, watch you making pizza. I'm sure you're going to make me hungry. We will put the details of um, how to access 
that um, video recording that Charlie's going to do with us in the show notes so you can get that. Tell us where people can find you, Charlie. So I think probably the key ones of interest might be um, around our van adventures. So we have a blog mm-hmm. which is called babybusadventures.com and an Instagram mm-hmm. by the same name, so at babybusadventures. Um, they're not so well updated at the moment because we haven't been doing a lot of travelling, but there's quite a lot of information on there. I've done posts on my favourite farmer's market, uh, I guess they're just generally markets in in mm-hmm. France and I've done posts on all the places that we stayed in France and Italy and all the other countries we've um, visited. Um, so that's got a lot of information on that. And then I probably would like to mention that I do have a podcast myself, although I've only done mm-hmm. a few episodes and neglected it for a while, but um, I would really like to get back into it. Um, and that's called the Exploring It Families podcast. And okay. <clears throat> it's around families who are making um, or have made life-changing journeys or, you know, big life changes. So that that really mm-hmm. stemmed out of meeting amazing people um through our journey um and not just people in vans but all different kinds um people on all different kinds of journeys and I just they were just such interesting conversations I had with those people I just felt like they needed to be shared so there's a few episodes on there um at the moment and I'd really like to try and get back into it and share some more of those stories from people I know out there that have done some really interesting things. We will link those in the show notes. Tell us also about your business because for people in the UK it can be a really useful resource. So I run a um, eco wedding directory called the Natural Wedding Company. It's actually just turned 15 so I've been doing it for quite a long time now and it's like Um, just an eco version of a wedding directory so it lists um, all the kind of suppliers that you might be looking for for a wedding but all the people um, all the businesses that I list um, have an eco or ethical kind of basis to their business so there are a few I've got um, uh, one in Italy and there are some that sort of uh, do worldwide services so yeah, it's mm-hmm. a really lovely business and really interesting suppliers that I work with. So Wonderful. We'll put a link to that in as well. Okay, well, I um, I think we're done. I'm really just I'm looking forward to recording and seeing in the van. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for your time, Charlie, and for, for sharing um, all the different aspects that you did about your trip. And, yeah, here's hoping you can get back in the van with your girls soon. Yeah, well, really thank you. So. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. <laughs>